So God bless you. We appreciate all of you so very much. You're a great church, and you've been so very good to us in so many ways. Amen. We've been now here in this church, I guess, some 40, 45, 45 years, 46 years, going on 46 years. And uh, you're just a great congregation. Praise the Lord. Some of you were here when we came. Not many, just a few, very few. And uh, some of the few that were here have passed on. But uh, some of you came in shortly after we were here and the church has grown. And then under the, our present pastor, my son, uh, the, the church has grown tremendously. So you're a great congregation, a great group of people. We love you so very much and thank you for your kindness to us always. You're always so very kind. We just finished up uh, a camp meeting in Florida. We had a great camp meeting this year and wonderful things that uh, the Lord just did and moved in that service. But I'm so happy to be back home. Praise the Lord. There's nothing like being in your own home church and being here to worship God and glorify Him and magnify God. Amen. All right. God bless you. I am going to start a new series this morning in the book of 1 Corinthians. I want you to turn with me to the first chapter in 1 Corinthians. And uh, I'm going to teach starting with this, uh, this wonderful book. And as you know, we talked, to, we talked to you from the book of Romans here a few months, several months back. And uh, in the book of Romans, we brought out to you that uh, Romans was a book in which uh, Paul emphasizes the principles of salvation, meaning he emphasized how it's possible for Gentiles who had no right to salvation could be saved. And there's a lot of emphasis there. He covers other bases as well in the book of Romans. But emphasis is really put on how it's possible that Gentiles could be saved. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, he had never been to Rome before. Uh, the second book in the, in the Bible, that's the epistles written by Paul, is the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, the Corinthian church, however, was much different. And the, the writings of 1 Corinthians... And even 2 Corinthians has to do with the practicalities of Christian living. It's not so much the principles of how we can be saved, <clears throat> even though that's brought out in a more minor way. He deals with what we must do to be saved, how we must live, how we must conduct ourselves, how we must be as a church. And so it's a very informative book. It covers a lot of things. Uh, we, as you know, well know, we talked to you about the resurrection last week. And a lot of the scriptures were in the book of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, which is the resurrection. We call it the resurrection chapter because the whole chapter is given just to that one subject. But in the book of 1 Corinthians, there are certain chapters that's given almost totally to certain things. Like the 11th chapter is given to communion and also to holiness. Uh, the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians deals with the spiritual gifts, and we'll be looking at all of those things. And for, the 14th chapter, 13th chapter is love. 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians uh, deals with what is called prophecy, which is the preaching of the Word of God. A lot of people think prophecy is only foretelling the future, but actually the word prophecy means preaching. And it's, it's speaking about uh, speaking forth the word of God under the anointing of the Lord and so forth. And we'll get into all of those things, but uh, it's a great book to study. And I'm going to put a map up here uh, on our overhead to give you a visual to, uh, to where we are, what we're looking at. Let me get it focused in here. Hang on, hang on just a minute. And uh, 
This is the map. I'm going to enlarge it somewhat here. Let me move it over this way some. I've got some arrows there for a reason. I'll explain that in a moment. But if you look at this map, uh, over here to the left is Italy. Most people recognize that by the boot that it is, Sicily being here, Italy here. This yellow area here is Greece, what we know today is Greece, mainly this right down in here. This up in here is other countries and so forth in that area. Uh, over here in the orange section, this over in here is what is today modern-day Turkey. This is modern-day Syria here, this pink area. And this green area is modern-day Israel today. And this, this down here, uh, this is uh, modern-day Egypt and so forth across the top of Africa, across the bottom. Uh, we are going to be talking to you about the city of Corinth. It was located right here where this era is, and it was in Greece. And it was at a very crucial place in Greece, a crossroads. And so in that Roman Empire, it was an area that really connected what they called the west to the east. And uh, everything seemed to have always come through here. It was not by ship, but by land it would come through here because everything from down in here going up across. And so Corinth was a real major city, and it was a city that had everything you could imagine there. Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians when he was at Ephesus. Now, this other area shows you where Ephesus is. Ephesus is described in the 19th chapter of the book of Acts where Paul went there for the first time. And he found some disciples that were John's disciples, John the Baptist. They'd been baptized unto repentance, but had not been baptized in Jesus' name. Paul baptized them in Jesus' name, laid hands on them, prayed for them, and they received the Holy Ghost and spoke in tongues. And that is, was that the founding of the Ephesus church. And then Paul remained there in Ephesus for three years. And in the, the, the latter part of that stay, in his third year, he finally wrote a letter to Corinth because he had already been to Corinth. He had been here, was on his way back. And he had been here, established the church at Corinth. And he had gotten reports about some things that were going on in the church that displeased him. And so... He addresses some of those things when he writes this letter. And it is almost like it was the hand of God for certain things to develop that Paul would write about to explain the right way for things to be done and handled that you and I may have the word for us today. The epistles tell us how to, how to not how to be saved, but how to stay saved. Uh, the book of Acts tells us how to be saved. That's where the apostles went forth and preached the gospel and people got saved and so forth. And all these areas in here, these people, all these churches were established and it's all brought out in the book of Acts. But the epistles or the letters written to the church, these were letters written to the churches telling them how to stay saved, how to live for God, how to walk with God, how to please God, how to conduct their worship services, uh, how to be Christians in, in a world that was not Christians and all those kind of things. So we will learn a lot from reading the epistles. The epistles are very informative uh, books in the Bible that tell us actually how to be saved in the New Testament. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to chapter 1 in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to start reading here, and we'll come across a few things. I'm going to explain some things to you. and get. Then we'll be getting into the meat of the matter here when we get to about verse 10. 
Look at number one here, Acts, uh, Acts 1 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice that, that he was an apostle. The apostle Paul uh, called himself and referred to himself as one born out of due season. Paul was the one God chose to take the place of Judas's chariot. Uh, there were 12 apostles, 12 disciples. They were 12 apostles. Jesus carried, betrayed the Lord and lost his place. Later on, when they were in the upper room, before the Holy Ghost fell, the apostles cast lots, which was a form of like throwing dice, but it was like making things just turn up the way they would. And the lots that they cast fell on Matthias, and Matthias was chosen as the 12th apostle to take uh, to take uh, Judas Iscariot's place. But that was done by the apostles before they even had the Holy Ghost. When God called Paul, he was God's uh, choice to replace Paul. Now you say, why is it important that we have the 12 apostles? In the book of Revelation, it says that the holy city had 12 foundations and on them was written the name of the 12 apostles. Now the word apostle means one who is sent. So there were men who were sent of the church in the early days of the, of, the, of the Bible here. They were sent by the church out to preach. In that form of the word, they were apostles. But there were only 12 apostles. You understand what I mean? And Paul was that 12th one chosen of God. He called himself and referred to himself as one born out of due season. It's like a big family of children, and then when you think the family is all, all the children's been born, they're all there, then you've got a, a late one that comes in the end of the, of the, of the, of the, of the cycle of, ch of childbearing. And so uh, he's, he's one, he said, I was one born out of due season. And so Paul was that point. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. God specifically called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to teach them, to help them to understand. And it was very important because Paul being so brilliant with the law of the Old Testament and then being instructed by the Lord. He spent three years when he was first saved in the Arabian desert uh, just studying the word of God three years before he even started preaching. And he did that, that he may understand how the Old Testament applies to the New Testament. And therefore, Paul understood that many of the things that are kept in the Old Testament did not have to be kept by the New, in the New Testament because they were all sanctified by the shedding of the blood of Christ on Calvary. For instance, we don't do sacrifices today because Jesus sacrificed one time and it was for all, you know. Uh, so forth and it goes on and on all those lot we don't have to worry about how to farm the land because that was all because due to israel in that particular part of the world and he understood all that so paul uh then addresses the gentiles and calls himself the apostle to the gentiles so in just about all of his epistles he refers to himself as the apostle so in this letter, he said, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus to be saints. Let me say one word here about sanctification. We are sanctified, praise the Lord, sanctified in Christ Jesus. We are sanctified by the shedding of his blood and the application of his blood. And the application of his blood is through baptism. The Bible says, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
And so the application of the blood is whenever we are baptized. The Lord said to uh, Ananias, and he said to Paul, rise, be baptized, washing away your sins. It was not the water that washes away your sins, it's the application of the blood. In the first chapter of the book of Acts, it says our sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. So the application of the blood, that's why it's important, folks, to be baptized right, to have the application of the blood. You say, what do you mean by the application of the blood? Well, it goes back to the old time when they came out of Egypt. And they had to take the blood, slay the, slay the lamb, and apply the blood to the doorpost of their house and across the lintel that the oldest son didn't die. How many of you know the story there called the Passover? It's, it's not by accident that Jesus died on the eve of the Passover. He was the Passover lamb. That's why John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And so Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. So whenever that, <clears throat> that Passover lamb was slain, Jesus Christ, wonderful. Uh, you know, now is the whole world saved? No, the application of the blood has to be applied. Uh, when the Passover lamb in Egypt was, was slain, the blood then had to be applied. You know, if a man said, oh, I'm not going to worry about that part. And we've, we've killed the lamb, the blood's been shed, uh, you know, and, and so forth. We're not going to worry about the application of blood. Then the death angel would have taken the oldest son in that family. The Egyptians didn't believe that stuff, and their oldest son died. But the, the Israelites believed it because it was the Word of God. And so if you and I then will apply the blood, the application of the blood is through baptism. That's why it's important for us to be baptized right. The Bible says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, quoting here from Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 4. One, one faith, one baptism, and that baptism, of course, is in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, you say, what about Matthew 28, 19? Go in all the world baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. The name of the Father is Jesus. The name of the Son is Jesus. The name of the Holy Ghost is Jesus. Not three separate persons, but three manifestations of the one God. In other words, God manifested himself various ways, and those were three different manifestations of God. God still manifests himself to us through the Holy Ghost. Amen. It was given to Jesus, not by measure, but to you and I is given in measure. We all have a measure of the Spirit of God in us called the Holy Ghost. It's a wonderful gift to have, and the Lord intends for all of us to have it. So repent, be baptized in Jesus' name, be filled with the Holy Ghost. And whenever we are, we are sanctified. We're sanctified in Jesus Christ. There is one denominational church that says you must be saved, must be, you must be uh, it must repent, be saved, and then you have to be sanctified and filled with the Holy Ghost. They make two different steps there, sanctified and filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, whenever you're sanctified, praise the Lord, you are filled with the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost sanctifies you. It's part of the sanctification. You understand what I'm saying? So you've got to have the baptism to be sanctified. They make it two different things. All right, I'm going to move on here because there's something I want to point out to you here. Look at this second verse. And to the church of God, which is according to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, to be saints. Saints is, is anyone who lives up to all the light that God gives in that particular dispensation of time. There were saints of the Old Testament. For instance, Aaron, the brother of Moses, was called a saint. Okay, a saint is someone who lives up to all the light that God gives in that dispensation of time. As you know, in Abraham's time, everybody did not believe God like Abraham did. And so Abraham and his family and all, they were saints in that sense of the word. 
in the New Testament, we are saints because we, are, we have repented of our sins, been baptized in Jesus' name, and filled with his spirit. Praise the Lord. And this is the, the, uh, what a saint is in the New Testament. A saint is not somebody that's unusually good person, finally established by the Catholic Church to be S-A-I-N-T, a big saint, you know, somebody that lived. You got to be dead for 200 years or something before then they claim you to be a saint. That's not what a saint is. That's the Catholic Church's doings of it to be able to exalt people that do good so other people will continue to try to be good like they were. You understand the purpose of it. But the Lord says we are saints. So he's, he wrote the church to the Corinthian people who were called to be saints. They were alive and well, incidentally, here at this point. Called to be saints with all that in, in, that in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus or the, Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. In other words, he is Lord both of the Jews and of the Gentiles. So whoever they be, whoever people are, call upon the name of the Lord and they've been sanctified in the Lord. They are the saints of God. And then verse 3 says, grace be unto you and peace. Let me say one thing here. The grace of God is God's unearned favor toward us. We didn't deserve it. We did nothing to deserve it. We have no right to it. Most of us are Gentiles. We didn't even have Abraham to our father. We had no right to it. But because God was full of grace and mercy and love and kindness toward us, we have, therefore, God's favor upon us. God's favor upon us is the grace of God. Therefore, all the actions of Christ, all the actions of Christ is a portion or part of his grace. Going to Calvary was the grace of God. Shedding of his blood on Calvary was the grace of God. Praise the Lord. Uh, his saving us, convicting us of our sins and making us feel guilty that we need to repent is all part of the grace of God. Praise the Lord. Being baptized in his name, being filled with the Holy Ghost, the grace of God. The grace of God continues. The, the ministers, he has given ministers to the saints of God that we might receive instructions from the Lord through the word and the wisdom of God through the word. Great faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That our faith may be increased and it may be kept alive when well through the preaching of the word. That's why you should always thank God for your preachers, your pastor especially. Hey, thank God for our pastor, our pastors all over, everywhere, not just here, but everywhere. Thank God for our pastors and our evangelists who come from time to time and preach, in the, and preach the word of God. That's all part of God's plan to give us faith. That's the grace of God. And when people stay home or they don't go to church or they've got something else more, they feel more important to do, then they are missing what God has designed as part of his grace to help them to not only be saved, but to stay saved. Amen. We need to keep hearing the word of God. There's been times, I don't know about you, but there's been times for me, way back there, especially when I was a younger man, that sometimes I'd go to church and I'd be so discouraged. I'd be so low. I mean, things just had the props knocked out of me. Might've gotten fired. I've, I've gone to church when I just gotten fired on my job. You're not fired. I'm sorry. Laid off. It's not through. I was not. I've never been fired. No, no. That's the way you feel, though, right? I never have been fired, really. But anyway, I was laid off because I guess they were shifting things around or something. I got laid off. And I'd be so low on everything, and I'd go to the house of God. You think I felt like praising the Lord, worshiping God? I felt like just doing this. And sometimes you come to church and you feel that way, everything. But you don't do that. You say, God... 
the bottom may have fallen out out there, but while I'm in here, I'm going to praise your name. And you just say, I'm going to worship God. You don't have to be the loudest voice in the church. You don't have to run the aisles or you don't have to dance or anything like that. But get those hands up and say, Jesus, I love you and I praise you and I worship you and I thank you and you're worthy of all my praise. You made heaven and earth. You made all the things in the earth. The wisdom of God is in everything you see and I see every day, everything we see, whether it's a little old plant or whether it's an animal or whatever bird that flies. It is the wisdom of God that's in that creature. We see it in everything. And thank God that he gave you and I existence. Amen. We were born. Amen. And we are here and we have the privilege to worship and glorify him. And one day with this life that we have in this earth, we'll be extended to eternal life and we'll live forever with Jesus Christ. Let's lift our hands and worship God right now. Jesus, thank you so much for your love, your grace, your goodness, your mercy to us. Thank you for the grace of God. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. God, how good you are to us. You never fail us. You never fail us. You never fail us. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us all the time. In Jesus' name. So he, he says here, this third verse, grace be unto you in peace. And the Lord, one of the things the Lord always wanted us to have is peace. He said, uh, peace be unto thee when he would appear to the disciples. Be not afraid as I. Peace be unto you. All those kind of things. So it is God's will that we have peace. There's times you can be very troubled and very frustrated and very upset. But if you could just say, God, give me your peace. There are people in this church that I had, they have told me personally, they lost a loved one. They lost a child, lost a child. There's one sister that I'm thinking of right now. She lost a child and she said, Brother Myers, I asked God to give me peace. And she says, the Holy Ghost came all over me and flooded me just from top of my head and over to my feet. It was just the, the presence of the Lord, and it just lingered. And she said, thank you, Lord, for the peace. I know my child is okay, that she's with you, and everything's going to be all right. And she said, from that day on, it never was a big heavy load to me anymore. I said, God, she's in your hands. I know everything's all right. That's a heavy thing. That's a heavy thing, folks. But I'm just saying God can give you peace, and I feel the Holy Ghost in saying this, that God can give us peace in anything if we just call on the Lord and ask God for his wonderful peace. Praise the Lord. Let me move on here. i got a lot of things I want to bring out to you. Uh, look at verse 4. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ, and we just talked about that that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. There is much knowledge in the Lord in the word of God. Verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Verse 7, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the Lord, praise the Lord. We're waiting for him. And uh, the early church folks from the time he went up were looking for his return. Nobody knows the day or the hour. People have been talking about it for 2,000 years. Some people have always felt like they had an edge and they knew right when the Lord was coming. Some people would say he's coming in such, such a date. That's been going on for hundreds of years, hundreds of years. Nobody knows the day or the hour. Back in the 80s, we had somebody came out and said the Lord's coming in 1980. Eight, I believe it was. 86, was it? I forgot. 
I know one, one it was all, he was coming in 19, he had to come before 1986 was one thing. I heard that when hey, he didn't come in 1986. Then they said he's got to come in 1988. I know where a lot of that was coming from. They, they believed it was, the tribulation period was 14 years, and they backed 14 years off 2000. So that's where they were coming up with some of them dates. But anyway, once the book came out, the Lord would come in 1988. He did come in 98, and they said, no, they were wrong. It was 1989 he would come. He didn't come in 1989. <laughs> some of them said he was going to come in the, in the year 2000. 2000, you know, the turn of the century. The rivers would flow backwards, all kind of stuff. I mean, it was all kind of things that was all out there, you know. And he did come in the year 2000. The Lord has his own time system. Praise the Lord. Now, ours is not his. Praise the Lord. We are following what man put together as time, you know based on our ability to be able to do so. But God has his own time frame. But I'm just telling you, the Lord will come. The only scripture that I can give you is that the one in Hosea 6, 2, that after two days, two days, the Lord will revive Israel. And we know that he'll bring, come back to his church just prior to revive Israel totally. Now, Israel is not revived. It's a nation back, but it's not totally revived yet. He has not brought all of Israel back together to their homeland yet. And so we know that's yet to happen, and that is brought out in the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation. So we know that hasn't come to pass. So after two days, the Bible says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. That's why when Satan told the Lord, told Eve, oh, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall not surely die. She said, the Lord said, the day that we eat this fruit, we shall surely die. Oh, you will not surely die. She ate the fruit, and she didn't die that 24-hour day. And she said, oh, you see, the Lord didn't tell me the truth. But the Lord was talking about a dispensational day, which was a thousand years. And Adam died, lived to be 930 years. Nobody has ever lived beyond a thousand years. Methuselah, the longest living guy, died at the age of 969 years. He was 31 years shy of a thousand years. You understand what I'm saying? So a thousand, a day with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. So after two days with the Lord revive Israel. And after two days, the Lord's going to, you know, probably get, that's the only scripture I can give you. Amen. I just know that we're close to that time now, right? Amen. You say, oh, well, this is 2018, or, you know, where we're in now. Yeah, but our time is not God's time. Remember that. So we don't know. Bible says that uh, except these days be shortened, no man shall be saved. So maybe these days are going to be shortened. Amen. Everybody say praise the Lord. So they were waiting for the coming of the Lord even back then. And it goes on to say here in verse 8, who shall also confirm you unto the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is at his coming. Uh, God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship unto his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, there's one other point I want to bring out to you before I leave this area here. I want you to look over in verse two, back at verse 2 here. Uh, look at verse 2 again, and I'm going to just mention this and move on. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Jesus Christ, uh, Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all of the uh, place called upon the Lord Jesus Christ by theirs and ours. I'm, I'm sorry. It's from verse 3 I'm looking at. Everybody still with me? I know I got you off track a little bit. Stay with me. Verse 3. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Trinitarians would like to say, see, this verse shows that there are two persons in the Godhead. 
the Lord Jesus Christ and our Lord Jesus Christ. The God, God our, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know why that appears to be that way is because of the second word uh, from. From. Look at the word from. Grace be unto you and peace from. Not that word from. God our Father and from the Lord. Notice that word is in italics. That word was added by the, uh, by the translators to give what they felt was a clearer meaning. And actually, when you take away that word from, it's got a clearer meaning knowing that Jesus Christ is the Father. And I'm going to read it again without that word from. Everybody with me? This is important. And you find this in a lot of the gospel book, the epistles, when they first start out. You'll find this kind of writing there. It says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that God our Father is the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's, it's, it is grace be unto you from, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and not and from the Lord Jesus Christ, like it's two different people. One come, is coming from each one of them, but that they are the same. Everybody with me on that? So, meaning, of course, and showing that they are the one and the same. All right. I'm going to move into verse 10. Look at this closely. We're going to get into some meaty subjects here. He said, Now I beseech you, brethren, verse 10, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. In other words, be consistent in what you believe and, and how we believe. And what we may say is the way that things should be done and the order of the church and so forth. So he said, be consistent, uh, speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you. No divisions. Uh, the Lord does not like divisions in the church. Praise the Lord. But that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. In other words, there's some strife going on because you differ, you, some of you believe different things. So he's rebuking them for that. Now, look at these next verses here. This is very interesting. Verse 12. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, or I of Apollos. Apollos was Peter. Is another name. For, I mean, sorry, Apollos was one of the other disciples. And I of Cephas, Cephas is Peter. So, so when somebody says, I am of Paul, somebody else says, I am of Apollos. He was another of the evangelists of his day. Not an apostle, but one of the evangelists. And he says, and another one says, I am of Cephas, which was Peter. And then he says, and I of Christ. Somebody else said, oh, you're from, you, you, you have a Paul. In other words, they were converted by Paul. They were converted by Apollos. They were converted by, by Peter, you know. Uh, so I am of him, you know, so forth. And somebody else said, hey, I wouldn't convert by any of them. I'm of Christ. <laughs> you know what I mean? They sort of got the, the eye. And so they became contentious with it all. And so here's what Paul says to them. Look at this closely here. And this is a verification of baptism, of, the, of our baptism. 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? You can't say, I was a Paul, I am a Paul, I am a Cephas, I'm a Paulus. Was Christ crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Or were you baptized in the name of Apollos? Or were you baptized in the name of Cephas? No, no. We were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, right? And so this is a, this is a scripture that implies 
that this church at Corinth was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I know in the book of Acts it states that they were, but when we go to here, it's a confirmation that they were baptized. And so he says, don't go saying I'm of this and I'm of that and I'm this, because he said we are all in Christ, we are all of Christ, and we've all been baptized into Christ. So he rebuked them for having this thing about I'm of this one, I'm of that one. Whatever Paul says, I believe. Whatever Cephas says, what I believe. And all those kind of things. He says, don't do that. And then he goes on to say, have you been baptized in the name of Paul? Showing that the baptism in Jesus' name was the way they were baptized. Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. Paul did not baptize the converts. He baptized a few of those that were first saved. And then from there on, they baptized the people. Paul emphasized his ministry on opening up new works, going into new towns, preaching the gospel, getting the first ones converted, baptizing them, and then they baptized everybody else. Let me say one word here. Anyone who's been baptized in Jesus' name is qualified to baptize somebody else. Did you know that? We always use the minister, you know, the minister, and, and I'm glad we do. I think it's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a nice orderly thing to do. But anybody has a right to baptize somebody else in Jesus' name. Praise the Lord. And uh, if somebody that you know wants to be baptized, I would recommend that you call the pastor or our assistant pastor, Brother, Brother Richie, uh, who's baptized many people in this church. And if I were to ask for a show of hands, many of you would say, Brother Richie, baptize me. Uh, as you well know, uh, our pastor baptizes not as many of you as much as our assistant pastor baptizes you. But it doesn't matter as long as we get baptized in Jesus' name. And uh, our sister one time was arguing me about the scripture. And finally I said, you, you know, you've got to be baptized in Jesus' name. She said, well, I've got a confession to make to you. I said, what is it? She said, I baptized myself in Jesus' name. <laughs> I said, how would you do that? She said, I went out to the end of a pier in, a, in a, this over in the Tampa area years ago when we were doing home missionary work over in Clearwater. She said, I went out on the end of a pier and I held my nose and I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, and I just dove in in Jesus' name. I said, well, I said, you know, if you really want to be baptized, I'll baptize you all over again, you know. So baptism is a very interesting thing, but baptism in Jesus' name is very important. But you have a right to baptize. We have a right to baptize people, and anybody can baptize somebody else. Uh, there was a couple of our brothers way back there that read in the Scriptures, you have to be baptized in Jesus' name. And they said, I've never been baptized that way, and I don't know of anybody that has. This other brother, he had read the same thing. I don't know of anybody. And they came across to each other, and they got to compare notes with each other. And they said, yeah, I've read where we, you've got to be baptized in Jesus' name, but I don't know of anybody else that's been, said, you, you believe it, I believe it, I don't know of anybody else that even knows about it. So they turned around, they baptized each other, praise the Lord. One baptized one and one baptized the other, praise the Lord. Those brothers went on and became great leaders of the Pentecostal movement. Amen. I'm just pointing out to you here how that baptism, praise the Lord, was so very important. Paul did not put his emphasis on the baptism part, but he put it on the conversion part and getting them saved. It didn't mean that baptism was not important. It meant that he put it in the hands of other people. You understand what I'm saying here. But baptism was very central. He brings that out. Verse uh, 14, he said, I'm glad I didn't. First, I'm going to read this 14 and then end the 15 here. I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptized in my own name. He said, I'm glad at this point that I did baptize you. And I baptized also the household of, of, of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. 
for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Because as long as he preached the gospel, people were converted and he baptized the first converts and then left it up to them to baptize the others. That was all that Paul was interested in. He said, I'll keep preaching. I'll get them saved. I'll convert, I'll, you know, convert them, but I'll let you baptize them. And uh, he goes on to say here in verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved. Notice the word are saved here. That means we are saved now. The Bible says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, shall be saved. Somebody says that means we'll be saved at the end of our life or coming of the Lord. Or we'll be, we are, we, we shall be. I said, no, no. That means that when you believe and you're baptized, that you're yet you're to be saved. Believing qualifies you to be saved. And they like to say, no, you're not saved anyhow. This verse of scripture tells us we are saved now. And of course, I could bring this out in chapter 15, verse 2. It also speaks about we who are saved. So I'm pointing this out so that you understand here that our state or stage of life in Christ is that we are a saved people. But we can be lost. We can be lost. But we are a saved people. We're the saints of God. And there is no eternal security. Anybody can be lost. That's why the Lord had Paul, uh, John, writing to that early, those early churches, those seven churches of Asia, telling them what their faults were, what they were, and said, I'll pluck you out of the, take your name out of the book of life, and I'll take your candlestick out of the holder. You know, you, you, you won't stay saved if you don't change your way. You have to remain saved. You can't say, oh, I'm saved, and I can live like I want to. Once saved, always saved. I'm going to go to heaven anyhow, regardless of what. No, 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 no. Don't ever buy into that. Because the Bible teaches too much against that. It talks about us living for God. Paul said, having preached the gospel to others, that I myself may be a castaway. And he said, no. He said, you, you've got to stay saved. I'm going to move on here. It says here in uh, verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is wisdom? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolishness the wisdom of this world? Foolishness the wisdom of this world. It is amazing how God takes simple things and makes them to be the way he does things. Folks, it's amazing. See, our smartness doesn't cut, doesn't cut mustard with God. I mean, it doesn't mean anything to God. You can try to think you're smart and you're wise and you're you're this and you're that, we're this, you know. It means nothing to God because God's foolishness is greater than the wisdom of man. And uh, the Lord talks about that. Verse 21, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. When he gave them wisdom, they didn't, even, they didn't take a hold of it. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, preaching... Guy gets up and he yells and he screams and he hollers and he jumps around and waves his arms and everything. But people are saved by that because the anointing that's upon him that causes him to preach and say the words of God so dynamically, that anointing touches people in that audience and they feel, I need to be saved. I need to get. So by the foolishness of preaching, God has chosen to save those that are lost. Let me just uh, talk to you for a few moments here. It's amazing how God will choose foolish things that we think of to do what he wants to do. 
Uh, we used to have a minister in our fellowship. His name was Alan Oggs. How many of you remember Brother Alan Oggs? Raise your hand way up. There's a number of hands here that knew Brother Alan Oggs. The rest of you may not know what I'm talking about, but those that know Alan Oggs knows what I'm talking about. But he had, musc he had muscular dystrophy, I think it was called. But he was, he was handicapped. He, he, he just he walked funny, and his legs and, and his arms like this, you know. And, uh, and his, his speech was a little slurred. And he'd walk to the pulpit with his Bible, and he'd crank that mic up and down till he got it just right where he wanted it. And he got a hold of that pulpit. And people that didn't know him would look at him and say, my God, this guy's going to preach? I mean, God love him, but, you know, he's a preacher? That's what they would think. And my friend, when he started preaching, you knew you were being preached to. And he would never move from that spot, and he could preach for an hour, and nobody left. And when he got through, that altar would fill up. God used that man so dynamically and so powerfully to preach the Word of God. He preached camp meetings all over the nation. He preached general conference. He even, uh, he even assisted in running a Bible, one of our Bible schools for a while. They wanted young men to be under his ministry because he was such a powerful preacher. He's come here several times and preached for us here back in, in, in years gone by. And uh, I, I've gone out to eat with Brother Alan Oggs, and sometimes he, he, his hands moved so much he, could, he couldn't even eat his dinner. It was just all over me. He said, I'll, I'll eat later in the room, you know. I'm serious. This is the way we, But God chose him. God called him as a, as a boy to preach the gospel, and everybody laughed at it. But God chose what we would think to be simple, unheard of, and he chose him to be a preacher of the gospel. I went to Bible school with a guy. Uh, I'm almost reluctant to tell names here because, uh, and, uh, but anyhow, I went to Bible school with him, and uh, he was a little bit effeminate, and uh, he had a high-pitched voice. He's from Texas. And he had a high-pitched voice like that. And he got a job as a secretary in one of the offices there and worked his way through Bible school. He was in my class. And he said, uh, I have a calling to be preached. That's why I'm in Bible school. I'm going to study the Word of God, and God's called me to preach the gospel. Everybody said, really? Yeah. On the job, they said, really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. You know, that's about the way you left it with it. He's a great guy and had a wonderful spirit. But he had the high-pitched voice, you know, and everything. Just like a girl's voice. And the guy was, uh, you know, he was 20 years old or whatever, 18, 19, 20 years old. And... Uh, and he was a good Christian guy. And one Sunday night at the altar, they were all down at the altar and praying for people through the Holy Ghost, and he lost his voice. He prayed for somebody and prayed with them and prayed with them and prayed with them and prayed them through the Holy Ghost. And in the course of that, he lost his own voice and didn't have a voice for three days. And when his voice came back, it was low, just like my voice or a man's voice would be. It was low, just like mine is now. It came back low, and they all said, oh, well, that's, he's just hoarse. Whenever that passes, he'll get back to his high voice. It never went back high. It was low from that day on. And that man, when he graduated Bible school, went out to preach the gospel and became a great preacher in Texas 
and was very skilled in doing uh, children's ministry. He married this wonderful girl, and they had a wonderful life together. I, I don't even know. I, I, I'm, I'm almost tempted to call his name because he's well-known all over fellowship. But I'm just telling you, folks, God will use simple things to confound the wise. Simple things to confound the wise, praise the Lord. You know, uh, we got one brother, when he first started preaching, everybody sort of gagged. He's very feminine acting, very feminine in all of his ways, you know, and everything. Everybody said, that guy turned out to have one of the most dynamic ministries in the United Pentecost Church. His name is Stone King. How many of you know Brother Stone King? Fabulous, dynamic ministry. But he's, he, he looks and acts a little effeminate. He said, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Forget it, he says. But he said, God has chosen me just the way I am, just to be what I am. And he is a dynamic minister. At one point, he even died down in Australia. He died of a heart attack and everything. They pronounced him dead, and God brought him back to life again. That's on record. That's on record. I'm just trying to say God can use any of us. He can use anybody, but God uses simple things to confound the wise. Praise the Lord. Don't ever, don't ever get smart with God. Hallelujah. He's got somebody else he can take the simplest, praise the Lord, and raise up. And I want to add one last word in closing here, and that is this. I believe God's going to use some of our young men. Uh, these young men you see growing in this church, they're just young people. But I'm going to tell you what, I believe God's going to raise them up, use them to preach the gospel in these last days in a way that you'd be amazed at how God is going to get souls saved and reach the world. And I think there's yet to be a great revival in this world prior to the coming of the Lord. God is going to do a great work. Let's stand together, worship God, and thank him here today. Let's just thank him. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. 